But what we plan to do um, sort of every couple of months is to look at a big objection towards Christianity. And tonight we're going to look at uh, this objection. It's a very huge objection. It's a very popular objection. Is the God of the Old Testament a moral monster? For many, there are things that they hear about God, I think especially from the Old Testament of the Bible, that they they would say they would find primitive and barbaric. And, And it's hard to see how not only could that be relevant to us today, but how could you justify some of the actions that God takes in the Old Testament of the Scripture? So what I want to do tonight, just really to set this up, is to begin by quoting from two different people um, and quoting their understanding of God as revealed in the Old Testament. The first is a well-known quote from Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion. And this is what Dawkins writes about the God of the Old Testament. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Um, So Dawkins is clearly not a a fan of the God of the Old Testament there. Now, I don't don't really like quoting uh, Dawkins, to be honest, because even um, my friends who are atheists would um, consider his views... very extreme. But I wanted to quote that just to give to you the extreme end of the spectrum. Perhaps that resonates with uh, some of you here, what you feel about the God of the Old Testament. Uh, To be honest, how could anyone love a God who is like that? That's the question. But let me read to you another quote about God from the Old Testament. It's from someone who actually lived in the time of the Old Testament. This is from an Old Testament king, King David. And he writes this about God. He writes a poem. He says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west... So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So there we have two radically different views about what God is like from the Old Testament. And maybe you think, well, David here, perhaps uh, David is still trapped in his primitive perspective and what he is saying there. But there are millions of people, myself included, who read the same account as Dawkins read uh, of God in the Old Testament and would be able to echo these words that David writes about God. I'd be able to sing that poem that David wrote because I believe that it's true. And I mean, just look at it. It's it's wonderful, isn't it? It's a wonderful picture 
of God. That is a God that you can love and a God that you can worship. Imagine a God who is like that. Well, I think that is the God that we see in the Old Testament. So this evening, what I want to do is I want to look at three difficulties that that Dawkins and uh, some of his fellow self-branded new atheist writers bring about the God of the Old Testament. And I want to try and convince and persuade you that actually what they... What they present when given in their context shows us not a negative picture of God, but a positive picture of God. So three things that that many people would struggle with when they read the Old Testament, when they struggle with uh, about the God of the Old Testament. So firstly then, I want to look at this uh, objection, God's exclusive right for worship. Some of what, actually some of what Dawkins says in that uh, statement is true about God. God is jealous. He talks about his jealousy himself. Uh, And although megalomaniacal, if that's how you say it, is the wrong word to use, he is nevertheless concerned that people come to him and that they give all their worship and all their adoration to him alone and to no one else. So take, um, let's look at the start of the famous Ten Commandments, for example, just as an example of this. This is what God says. He says um, to his people after he rescued them, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." So there we have it. Straight up, uh, God demands exclusive worship, and if he doesn't get it, he says he gets jealous and he gets angry. Uh, The late Christopher Hitchens, in his book, God is Not Great, thinks that the first commandment shows just how petty the God of the Old Testament is, that he simply cannot handle someone or something else being worshipped. But I would say that the, the problem, the fundamental problem with Dawkins' view and with Hitchens' view on this, is that it neglects one very key fact, and it's going to be a, such an important fact for all that we see tonight. And that is, God is God. God is not an oversized version of us in the Bible. He's not us just magnified and increased. You see, exclusive selfishness is a, is a repugnant trait when we see it in others. But if God is to be God, then it actually has to be a necessary part of his character. If God is not pointing people to himself and declaring that he is great and worthy of worship, then it would imply that there is something else that is greater than he, and therefore that would be worthy of worship, and therefore God would not be God, but that would be God. God has to adore that which is infinitely worthy of adoration. And that is himself. See, self-exaltation for us, it's a bad thing when we see it in people like us because we are not gods. We are not the center of the universe. We, we are not the ones who created this world. But for God, it has to be a fundamental part of his character. That's why he demands exclusive worship, because it's true, because that's who he is. Now, I can see where some people come from when they get tied up in knots about this, um, because it would be strange for me to say, say if I said to to Scott here tonight that, uh, I said to Scott, Scott, I want you to be my friend. Scott is my friend, I hope. Um, 
<laughs> shaking his head. But say I, I said to Scott, I want you to be uh, my friend. But Scott, you must forsake all other friends. You must never phone them. You must never get in touch with them. Uh, it must just be me and me alone. Um, now that probably that probably wouldn't be a good friendship. Uh, and to be honest, it wouldn't be long before Scott would file a restraining order against me. Um, but that's not that's not what God's saying here. He's not one God amongst many, like in a friendship, and we can just have our pick. He really is the one God alone. That's why it makes sense to what he says. And actually, although we wouldn't do it in a friendship, we do make exclusive bonds to each other. If I were to get married, I would make a promise to my wife to be faithful to her alone, forsaking all, our, all others. That's, that's what you hear in the wedding vows. Now, that's not a petty thing. But it highlights that she is the one that I love and want to be with. And there, there's no one else apart from her. It's exclusively for her. And the relationship actually between God and his people is often described in the Old Testament as the relationship between a husband and a wife. It's, God uses the image of marriage to convey how he feels for his people. And I think that actually helps us understand this language of jealousy. Uh, if your spouse was to forsake you and to go and sleep with another person, how would you feel about that? You'd feel angry. You'd feel jealous. Not because you're a moral monster, but because you love that person. You see, if God was indifferent to his people chasing after false gods, that would make him a moral monster because he wouldn't care about his people. But he does care for them. That's why he gets jealous. That's why he gets angry. That's why he loves them and calls them to stay faithful to him. Then there's a second sticking point I think we see. Probably a bit more complicated. And this is God's harsh laws. God's harsh laws laws. The, the law in the Old Testament is something a lot of people struggle with. Um, to be honest, it's something I think a lot of most Christians, if not all of them, w- would struggle with at some point in their lives. Uh, and it's important, I think, before going to look at this, uh, to recognize actually what is the purpose of these laws, of these Old Testament laws we're going to look at. Because they're not given in the Old Testament. They are never given as a means for controlling the people. So God doesn't say, here's some laws, you have to obey them or I will never accept you. That's not what it's like. You see, another relationship that, that God uses to describe the relationship between him and his people is not just one of a marriage, but one of a father and a son. So God gives a law to his people to guide them, to correct them, just like parents would give laws to their children so that they would know what to do, they would know what is right, and parents would discipline their children when their children do wrong because they care for their children. And God's aim when he gives this law is that they would be set apart, that his people would not be like the surrounding nations round about them, but that they would be set apart. Uh, the Bible uses the term holy. That's what it means to be, to be set apart. And so if we look at Leviticus 19, um, this really sets up the basis, the purpose of the law. This is what it says in Leviticus 19. The Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So God the Father wants his children to be like him and to reflect his character to the world. That's why he gives the law. That's how Leviticus 19 begins. And actually, 
I would encourage you to go and read Leviticus 19 when you get the time to see what this holiness looks like. Because it looks like revering your parents. It looks like looking after the poor and the foreigners amongst you. It looks like not stealing. It looks like not thinking ill of others. It looks like enacting social justice and fairly distributing resources. It looks like loving your neighbor as yourself. That, That was a radical concept at the time. And yet it has become, I think, a pillar of modern day ethics. And it's found here in Leviticus, the book that Christians fear to tread in and atheists love to quote. Love your neighbor as yourself. But most difficulties people have with the law, I would say, comes because they haven't actually read the whole law. And one of the things that would be good to come out tonight, if you were to read it, Read the entire law. It's not, it's not an easy read. It's really difficult. Um, but read it and see what it is like. Now, there are laws in it that we would find very difficult. And I would say, first of all, that historical context is absolutely essential when we look at anything to do in the Old Testament. This is not a modern Western democracy we are looking at when we look at um, the nation of Israel. Uh, this is an ancient Near Eastern theocracy. So something like the death penalty uh, was practiced in cultures all over that time. And the death penalty is what we see in the law of God. But actually it's very tightly regulated in the law of God and often only for very serious uh, crimes. And again, if you were to look at Old Testament law, and you were to compare Old Testament law, say, with other cultures of the time. If you, if you could get your hands on looking at the, the laws of the Babylonians or the laws of the Medes and the Persians and compare the two, you would see that the Old Testament law is radically different. Radically different. So take, for example, the laws on slavery. Now, this is a real sticking point for many Christians. Um, uh, this is one that Dawkins goes to town on. But I should say, actually, that nowhere in the Old Testament does God actually condone slavery, but nor does he prohibit it. There is laws on slavery. And that is, I think, because God is aware that it, is nev- that it will be prevalent sorry, in the culture at that time. So God gives laws about how his people are to regulate it and how his people are to, to use slavery in a way that is different from other cultures. And if this is something you struggle with, if you think, I can't believe that that would have been regulated in Old Testament times, then I would encourage you to read Deuteronomy 15. Just read it. Read what God has to say about slavery. And it's clear that if you read that, chapter, you see that God wants slaves to be treated as equals, which was unheard of at that time. And God wants slaves to eventually be liberated. There's a clear call for the liberation of slaves. And again, that was just simply unheard of. And often God's law in the Old Testament is not condoning something But it's given because it's a sinful world that these people live in. So laws in slavery or divorce or warfare are not given because God likes these things, but because he knows that they are going to be prevalent in that culture and he wants them to be holy, to be set apart and to not do it the way the other nations are doing it, but to do it in a way which is kind and gracious and compassionate, a way which reflects the the fact that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. The historian Tacitus, the ancient Roman historian, he wrote about um, the Roman Republic and he said this, that the more corrupt the Republic, the more numerous the laws. And that's very much the case with Old Testament law. 
Jesus tells us, actually, if we were to take all these laws, there's over 600 of them, if you were to take all these Old Testament laws, they could very easily and very succinctly be summed up into two laws. And that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the essence of Old Testament law. So God gives the law so that his people can be radically different, and the thing that marks out that difference is fundamentally love. Now, one of the the accusations thrown at Christians um, that I've heard quite a lot uh, is that Christians just tend to ignore some Old Testament laws and accept others. Um, And I would say that we do read the law differently now, because we live in the time after Jesus, to the nation of Israel did. Um, But I just don't have time to elaborate upon that. So this is not a cop-out. But if that is a genuine objection, I would encourage you after um, this talk to text that question in to the question panel, and we can deal with it more then. Um, But just for time's sake, I need to move on to this third and final point, God's violent commands. Uh, You know, sometimes, to be honest, sometimes there are things that you read in the Old Testament and you read them in their context, you read them correctly, and it's still really, really difficult to digest. There's a few instances where God in the Old Testament orders the complete eradication of certain groups of people. Let me just pick up on one such instance. It's when God orders Israel to completely eradicate all the tribes that are uh, in the promised land. God wants them to move into the promised land, and he gives them a command to wipe out all these tribes. Now, it should be noted before we look at this, that this was intended always to be only a one-off event. This is not a mandate for holy war at all. Um, So in Deuteronomy chapter 20, it's another uh, section that's worth noting down, God actually gives rules for warfare. Uh, And he does that again because this is, the, this is the culture that people lived in. People lived in a culture of warfare. It's not something we're familiar with, yet that is something that they, were fami- that they were familiar with. But what is striking, if you were to read Deuteronomy 20, is just how, how gracious the rules are, again, in comparison with other nations round about them. Um, Deuteronomy 20 is like the Geneva Convention in terms of its laws on warfare. But there is an exception, and it comes in verse 15. And this is what it says. God says, Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. So that's talking about the previous commands about being gracious in warfare. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. It's It's pretty clear. There's no getting around it. But there is a key contextual thing to grasp here, and it's actually mentioned there in the text. And that is that these tribes that God gives the command to wipe out are not innocent people. Um, Christopher Hitchens talks about this in his book, and it's so cartoonish the way he describes it that it's clear that he almost has nothing 
that he's not read much of the Old Testament. This was not some idyllic commune of people merrily enjoying life before the wicked Israelites descended and massacred them. These were a horrendously wicked people. They used to practice perverse sexual practices involving bestiality, rape, pedophilia, and incest. And even more shocking, they used to sacrifice their children in fire to their gods. So God commands this because he wants to use Israel as his instrument of justice against wickedness. This is not an arbitrary command. This is an act of divine punishment and justice against a wicked nation. Earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 9, God says this to to Israel, just so they're clear on this, it is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess this land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. So God is doing this because he is just. I'm not going to lie, this is really, really difficult to comprehend. But however unpalatable it may be, it is nevertheless just. In fact, whenever justice is enacted, we may not like it, but we do know that it's right. When Nazi war criminals were executed as part of the Nuremberg trials, I'm sure if you were there, that wasn't an easy thing to watch. But we know that that's right. It's just. And again, if God is indifferent to evil, if God is indifferent to wicked practices and does not punish it, then he is a moral monster. Indifference is the mark of a moral monster. And I would say that I think, I really do think that a problem a lot of us have with this is not that we think that God is a moral monster, but rather we fear the fact that God is a moral judge. There is a judge over humanity. We like to think we're autonomous beings, but there is someone higher than us who does have an authority over us and who does have an authority to judge us. Again, if God was to be God, then he would have to be a judge. And let me just use this moment as well, just as we're wrapping up, to dispel a myth that many of the the New Atheist writers would say about God in regard to this. And this is the issue of God being a racist or God being a a bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, as Dawkins um, says. God's judgment in the Old Testament, God's judgment in the Bible is never, ever, ever done on the basis of race. So for example, actually, it's really interesting. Read the passages of God's judgment and you'll see that God always gives an opportunity for people to turn back and to be saved, for people to turn to him. So there is an example in the Old Testament of a lady called Rahab who who decides to um, help God's people and come to God, and she in turn is saved by God. She's a Canaanite, yet she's saved by him. And Israel is itself a mixed-race society. Uh, There's examples of this all over the Old Testament. In fact, God's promise that is prevalent throughout is that through Israel, all nations of the earth will become blessed, and people of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will come to God and will be saved. What we dream of in terms of racial harmony is what the Old Testament holds out to us. It's an ideal. That's what Martin Luther King believed. That's what motivated him to fight for the civil rights movement. He believed the Old Testament ethic that all men are created equal in God's eyes. And during his famous speech, he actually stated that he wanted to let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream. 
It's a quote from the Old Testament. As we close, I just want to look at, recap, just to sum up basically what I'm, what I'm trying to say here. And to hopefully, I've not gone through this a lot of this succinctly. I'm really hoping this will stir up a lot of questions um, that you can ask in the Q&A time. But God's exclusive right to worship shows us that he is God and that he loves his people. God's harsh laws show us that God cares about how his people behave and he wants them to be holy and distinct. And God's violent command shows us that God cares about evil and wants to execute justice. I just want to go back and look at these two quotes, the Dawkins and Psalm 103, just to finish. You know, um, I agree with Dawkins. I know you probably won't hear that said often in the church. Um, but I could not worship a God like that. But fortunately, the God he describes is nothing more, again, than a caricature of his own making. And it's really put forward to push what I have to say is his own hate-filled agenda. What David writes in Psalm 103, that is the God of the Old Testament. Isn't that a God you could follow? That's a God you could love. And that's the same God that we worship. That's the same God that calls you here today to follow him. And notice as well that David doesn't just emphasize his love. God's not just um, uh, some cosmic teddy bear, but he emphasizes his majesty. David talks about fearing God. He's not being afraid that God's going to hurt you, but he's talking about have a reverence that this is the mighty God of the entire universe. This is the God who calls us to worship him. Great, powerful, and transcendent, yet also loving, intimate, and compassionate. That is the God I see when I study the Old Testament. You know, I can sing that poem with all sincerity, but I honestly have to say that we have a greater advantage than even David did. David lived in a time of promises. That's the key thing to understand about the Old Testament that's often neglected. The Old Testament's all about promises. Promises that God will one day gather his people from all nations to worship him. Promises that that he himself will be their king and he will fix all that is broken, all that is wrong with humanity. Promises that he will come down and live with us. And all those promises that David knew that spurred him on to write this poem, all those promises we today have seen answered in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Come down to us in the flesh. And he doesn't nullify what we see of God in the Old Testament. He magnifies it. And it's because of what he has done. It's because of how he has rescued us. It's because of his death on the cross that we can sing that song knowing how it was possible as far as the east is from the west. That is how far God has removed our transgressions from us. That's the God of the Old Testament. The same God whose voice thundered from Sinai is the one who was crucified to a cross of wood. You know, I do struggle with passages in the Bible. Uh, It's my job to teach you. Uh, And I do struggle with a lot of passages. But the more I study it, the more I'm aware, the more I'm blown away by how radical this God's love is. And the more I look at the cross, I see just how far he went to save me. And it's the more I can say that this God truly is good. Let me pray and then Scott will come back up. Father, um, there's some difficult parts of your word. We acknowledge that. We, we struggle to understand. Um, but Lord, help us to, to see it, to understand it, uh, in its right context, both historically and theologically. 
Um, help us to see and savor a, a true picture of your character, um, not to follow caricatures or, or myths, but to really look at who you are and what you have said um, and to come and see this God that David writes so passionately about. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In Jesus' name, amen.